There are more than 250,000 unsolved murders across the United States. This is a national crisis, and there are thousands and thousands of families who have no answers about who killed their loved ones. Using advances in technology, crowdsourcing, and good old-fashioned boots-on-the-ground investigative work, follow American Military University's Cold Case Investigative Team as we work to break the case for one of those families. This podcast contains details and descriptions of actual homicide victims and their injuries, including sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Break the Case. Hey, Jen, what's going on? George, I think I found our next case. The day she was murdered, we ended up going and picking up Debbie to go eat at Pizza Inn. Before I left, she told me that she would come back up there and help me with inventory. I tried to call her to find out when she was going to be there, and I didn't get an answer. I walked between the two vehicles, and when I turned the corner, noticed Debbie laying by the step. In 1984, Lubbock police declared that they had solved Debbie's case when the now infamous self-proclaimed serial killer Henry Lee Lucas confessed to her murder, along with hundreds of other unsolved homicides around the country. Ultimately, police closed nearly 200 cases as a result of Lucas's so-called confessions. Henry Lee Lucas was right here in Lubbock yesterday, leading detectives to several locations of murders, including this carport, where in 1975, detectives found the body of Deborah Sue Williamson. The detail Lucas provided was so exact, authorities found it frightening. In some sense, there is a little comfort now in knowing they have solved the unsolved. But Debbie's family was far from convinced that Lucas was her killer. So Liz, in 1984, my understanding is there's a guy named Henry Lee Lucas that confessed to your sister's murder. What can you tell me about that situation? Well, I know in May of 84, I had come home from work, and my parents told me that they needed to talk to me, and they were very serious. And I remember sitting down on my bed, and they were standing in front of me telling me that they had received a phone call from Lubbock Police and that they had found Debbie's murder. You would think that would be a really happy day, but it ended up being another nightmare in my life. We were very relieved in a lot of ways, had a lot of questions, but just thank God. And so my parents went to Lubbock Monday morning and met with the police, and they were telling them that who killed her was Henry Lee Lucas. And they read his confession, and they knew immediately that he didn't kill her because of the confession. It was all wrong. It was completely wrong. Debbie's mom, Joyce, recounts learning of her daughter's alleged murderer during an interview in 2017. We got the call from the police, and we went Monday morning. They handed us this confession, how he went in the house. He said that he went into the glass door. There was a big curio cabinet in front of that patio door. He could not have gone through it anyway. Went down the hall, into the bedroom, and went out the back door. None of that happened. We told the 
detectives, we did not believe this. He could not have done this. How can you even accept this? We were mad. We had no help, no support. So we decided to do our own investigation. Bob and Joyce, now we're going up against the police and authorities to prove to them that they had the wrong man and that Henry Lee Lucas could not have killed Debbie. The Lovett police was very frustrated that they were not just accepting the confession and that they were disputing it. My parents just didn't understand, and it just went on for several weeks. My parents asked him specifically, was he even in Lubbock? Can you prove he was even in Lubbock on that day that my sister was murdered? They did not answer any questions. They became very angry at my parents. Despite the Lemons' protest, police continued to insist that Lucas was the perpetrator. Debbie's parents launched and funded their own investigation to prove to police that Lucas wasn't her murderer. They decided they had to take it into their own hands to just even prove, was he even in Lubbock at that time? They started researching his life in his every move. And they discovered he was in prison in uh, Michigan and released on the 22nd, I believe, of August of 75. Was put on a bus to, I believe, Maryland. And they could prove he was put on a bus to Maryland. They went and proved who he was staying with. And they got all this documentation to prove all this, that Henry was not even in Lubbock at this time because they had indicted Henry Lee Lucas for her murder. So they brought this information back to them, and that made them matter. And to be clear, your parents are funding all of this themselves, correct? Yes, they are, 100%. Travel and time off and everything else. Exactly. And by the time all this is over with, they were in debt over $100,000. They went bankrupt and ended up losing their house over it just to get her case reopened. Because they didn't want someone indicted and, and sent to prison for murdering my sister that did not kill her. They wanted the real killer. And this wasn't even money spent to go after the real killer, right? This is to clear a guy who falsely confessed. Yes, that's correct. So once police begrudgingly accepted the fact that Henry could not have committed this murder, then what happened in terms of the investigation? They came to a very startling conclusion that, a realization that he hadn't killed many other people as well during that time frame that he was accused of. So they took that information to the Texas Rangers. It was just a very, very uh, horrible situation, and they were trying to get it to the public, going to the media, because they felt like they didn't have any other choice. The proper authorities were not listening to them or accepting any of the official documentation that they had collected. In 1984, almost 10 years after Debbie's murder, Henry Lee Lucas's confession to hundreds of murders had drawn national media attention. During this time period, a 24-year-old journalist named Philip Hamilton was assigned to report on Lucas. I talked to Philip about how he first learned of Debbie's case. I was a, a young, very young reporter at the Lubbock Avalanche Journal and just general assignments at the time. And uh, one of the assignments that uh, came to me 
was to do a couple of stories on Henry Lee Lucas, who at the time was confessing to a lot of cases, and among those were uh, three in Lubbock. And that was kind of my first introduction to it. I had to get uh, well acquainted with 10 years of things that had been happening uh, with Debbie's case. One of the things that I was asked to do was to get a background on Henry Lee Lucas and also do a timeline. You had all these law enforcement guys all over the nation that were tagging Henry, and they wanted to put not only his early life together, but also to go out and find what are all the cases that he is uh, being tagged to. One of the problems at the time was that there were a lot of pieces of that puzzle that were not adding up into a nice, clean timeline. That piece, which we went ahead and put it together, but the timeline, it had holes. (laughs) It just had lots of holes that we couldn't manage. I had tried to get a hold of Bob Lemons and Joyce, and uh, I hadn't been able to do it. They were extremely hard to find. But after this piece, they found the the Avalanche Journal, and then that brought me into talking with them. Okay. Do you remember any of the specific holes in Lucas's timeline that were relevant to Debbie's case? Yes. uh, One of the first things that began to appear is we had problems on pinpointing when he could have been in Lubbock because uh, he was in prison at the time. And you can't be in prison and commit a murder. It, It just doesn't work that way. So there either had to be a record wrong or he didn't do it. Correct. And what do you remember that they did in terms of their own investigation into Lucas and his potential involvement with Debbie's murder? Uh, My goodness. Well, the first thing they did was begin to question the scenario that was being given with Lucas. He was supposedly had been allowed to lead them to the neighborhood and then lead them to the house and give them a scenario of what had happened and what had been in the house and everything. None of it fit, just none of it. And so that prompted them to start uh, looking deeper. And over time, they made trips to Maryland to gather work records. They did lots of things to knock out when Lucas could have been actually in Lubbock. And along the way, we were working with them and writing about what was taking place. Right. Not to mention that he gave a bunch of false statements about the murder itself. Oh, my goodness. I don't have the tape, but I listened to the tape of him. You did. And it was so very wrong. I would love to say, hey, did this great investigative work and put it out there and it made a difference. Well, the truth of the matter is Bob and Joyce Lemons did the footwork. And there have been some people over time that have tried to take a lot of credit for what they did, but they did the legwork. They put it together. And then we were working from that to determine, okay, what did happen? But before we could do that, we had to determine what didn't happen. Bob was just emphatic uh, about the fact that this could not be him. He had so much wrong and, and so many holes in it that he was just emphatic. It was impossible. Yeah. And you spent quite a bit of time with Bob and Joyce around this time frame, correct? Yes, I did. A bond created between us, and they shared their information with me as a way to get it out and get it going. So we were talking on the phone daily, and often we were were meeting. Here was a couple that wanted answers 10 years later, and instead they were being given false answers by someone that was 
taking advantage of the situation. Right. So how much reporting do you think you did around that time frame on Debbie's case? It was sporadic, really. As things became available, we reported on it. We did the timeline that didn't work. Then we began to report on the fact that they were going to go forward with this no matter what. And uh, the DA was pretty persistent on wanting it to uh, move forward. He would change his mind later. But uh, they moved fast. Uh, I was looking the other day, and I think they brought Lucas uh, in something like May, because that's when we first started writing about it. And by July, uh, he's indicted. So what do you think it was that finally changed the DA's mind, well, and the minds of the other law enforcement officers involved in this indictment? Well, things began to fall apart. In order to get Debbie's case reopened, the Lemons and those of us that worked with them had to disprove, instead of proving someone did this, we had to disprove what was being pushed as uh, the storyline of what uh, Henry was doing. And Henry simply was not doing anything other than enjoying his hamburgers and his milkshakes as he flew around the country. He learned if he was going to stay alive, he was going to have to uh, keep confessing. And so I watched it go from 20 to 60 to 80 to 300. And, you know, I hear the 300 always put out today. But, you know, at one point he was claiming 600. That was the unraveling of all this mess that was really clouding what should have been the issue, and that is who had killed Debbie. Well, we were putting together a story that, quite frankly, Lucas could not have done Debbie nor any of the others. We were doing that at a time that the Dallas Times-Herald and uh, WFAA Channel 8 out of Dallas, we were all at the same trail doing the same story ready for it to break. And there was kind of a single day, that uh, a single Sunday, that all of us were basically going to break this story. Much to my surprise, I was told by a person in leadership at the Avalanche Journal that we're not going to do any more Henry Lucas stories. Really? And I was shocked. I knew we were on the cusp of all this. I explained what we had, but the feeling was uh, amongst this person that was in leadership that we weren't going to do it. I actually did publish on the same day as the others, but I published with another news organization. And I did it as a freelance. We did not have a policy against that. And later we had to prove that in order to get myself out of trouble. It did go out, and it did go out on a a large scale as my portion uh, of that. It's a difficult time uh, in my life, but uh, I walked in on Monday while everybody was uh, all excited about that and everything. I was uh, being summarily dismissed from the Avalanche Journal. Wow. I was devastated. Here I'm doing the right thing. And I'm losing my job. But I was still talking to Joyce and uh, to Bob. In Vintage Bob, he said, well, hell, come with us. And you can write a book or something, but come on. So they took you under their wing? So they basically took me under their wing. I didn't have a job, didn't have anything else. So uh, I went and lived with them for several months as we did interviews and and, uh, sat around the table and talked. It was a very uh, good relationship there, unfortunately. My father came down with uh, serious cancer, and I needed to be somewhere else. We continued to to work with that uh, up until a day. 
on that day, Bob and I were talking on the telephone. We had been doing some discussions about some of this. After I hung up, shortly after that, the phone rang, and I picked up the phone at my home. Bob and I's discussion was playing back in my ear, and uh, I was a kid who got scared. No kidding. I have no idea who was recording that uh, conversation. Really, we had gone up against the Texas Department of Public Safety. We had gone up against the DA's office. We had gone up against law enforcement officers all over the the nation. And uh, quite frankly, I didn't know the black hats from the white hats. All I knew was I need to take care of my dad. And so uh, for a season, I walked away from it. Yeah, I think that's understandable. Obviously, somebody had tapped your phone, correct? That was always my assumption. I didn't know enough about technology back then or now to know if they did or they didn't, but but something uh, was happening there. Right. They found some way to record that conversation and then call you back and play it for you and let you know. Yeah. Well, I don't know that they called back or if it was a case of the technology malfunctioning and, and sending it back, you know? I don't know. Oh, Interesting. Okay. That's what I always thought was, hey, this thing just, because it just dialed me back right after I picked it up and there it was. I could see where that would uh, rattle you a little bit. Yes. It did indeed. When a crime is committed, clues live within digital devices. That's digital forensics. Learn how to process and analyze that data by earning a Bachelor's of Science in Digital Forensics from American Military University. Classes are online with monthly program starts. Learn more about AMU's digital forensics degree by visiting amuonline.com slash forensics. It was a symbiotic relationship between the Lemons and reporter Philip Hamilton. Philip was an inquisitive young journalist investigating the biggest story of his life who needed access to information and the Lemons needed Philip to keep Debbie's case in the media spotlight. Throughout the course of his several years of reporting on Debbie's murder, Philip talked to Bob extensively about everything he had witnessed at the crime scene and the information he had received from police. Bob was very uh, specific in sitting down and talking to him, and he gave the scenario much like uh, was in the police files. He recounted everything of that evening, starting with going to the Pizza Inn there in Lubbock on 50th Street, He recalled going back and dropping off Debbie and the conversation that she was going to go watch a movie. Then he got a call in the middle of the night from Debbie's husband, concerned, because maybe she was out there because she wasn't answering the phone. But he recalled the second call that was taken that Joyce took and that something had happened to Debbie. said they drove out there. Bob never drove because he had impaired vision. He could see some things, but not enough, certainly not enough to drive. He uh, literally said at the time he jumped out of the car when I know he said something to the tune of Joyce. It's it's true. Something's happened to Debbie and jumped out of the car. When Bob first told me that, I thought, oh, this is bolsterous. But as I've talked to others, apparently it was true. He went charging up there, and he took out two people that were trying to stop him from getting up to Debbie. But he went all the way up to Debbie at the porch and with her laying there with her uh, head next to the step. I mean, he saw it all that night. He was overwhelmed out there. He had seen his stepdaughter there in a pool of blood. He had seen the other pool of blood by her car. He had seen the drag marks of blood 
going to where it was. He had tried to console Doug, the husband who had found her. So tragic to have that as your last memory of somebody. And then he was able to walk through the residence later on? He did. Bob told me in our interviews later, he did have an opportunity to walk through the house, which amazed me that there was a detective at the door, but he was allowed to go in. He gave a scenario of walking through each of the rooms. He spoke of things that you read in the police file about the paring knife being on the counter. He noticed rings left from a sweltering glass on a, I can't remember right now if it's the counter or a table there. But he walked through each of these rooms, through the living room, through the den, different uh, places, and, and into the bedrooms. And he walked into the bathroom. One of the specific things that uh, he mentioned was that in that bathroom were two wet towels that were hung over the shower rail, the, the shower curtain area. They were not towels. They were two wet towels. And that's always been interesting. For sure. What do you, what do you make of that? Well, on one hand, we know that Debbie had said she was going to take a shower and watch TV. That would account for one wet towel. The only other indicator there was Doug, the husband, had taken a shower, which would have had to have been 2, 3 in the afternoon, maybe 4, because he had to go to work. Correct, yes. But towels don't stay wet for uh, 7 hours. Right. We should actually do an experiment on that. <laughs> yeah. So he saw the two wet towels there. He mentioned the glass in the sink from the window that had been busted outside. There's glass on the inside, there's glass on the outside. And so it was uh, interesting to him that there was some on the inside. He got an up-close look of that. He immediately picked up on the missing purse. And especially, I don't know how many times I heard Bob and Joyce mention the puzzle book uh, that was laying there. He saw all the details laid out there in front of him that night. And you have to understand that Bob doesn't see well. Right. I was just thinking about that. (laughs) But yet... If Bob can see it, then that's significant because he did not see well at all. And yet he was able to walk through and he was able to see those things. I know Bob well enough to know that if he said there were wet towels in that bathroom, that meant he reached up and touched them. They were wet towels. One of Bob's greatest complaints were how many, in his words, mistakes were made out there at the crime scene. It troubled him greatly, the evidence that appeared to be lost out there. So what specific examples did he give of how he thought maybe the crime scene processing was kind of botched? Is that fair? Well, he was especially upset with the tracks out in the alley that had been collected and then not able to use that after wrong materials were used. He was bothered by the fact that there were so many people, and including himself, that were everywhere. And you have to know, his description of it is, is that here it is, it's kind of out in a rural area back then. But even at that, in neighboring yards, people are collecting and standing around. No lengthy perimeter. They finally moved them out, but my soul. It was a main event. Yeah, they didn't uh, contain the crime scene, basically, or secure it, I should say. You know, one of the things that through the years we haven't had that you and your team have now brought to this is the forensics end. Because for forensics, it was going to have to be the police department. There was so much animosity after 
Bob and Joyce Lemons said, this can't be. So there were some hard feelings there. I'm hoping those are gone so that some of the new techniques can be used on old evidence to uh, affirm some possibilities that have been raised. What your team has brought into this is that we now are beginning to have some of that. I'm hoping there's a new day at the uh, Lubbock Police Department, and I think maybe there is. I cannot stop looking at this case, and there's probably some people at the AJ, uh, the Avalanche Journal, that think I'm crazy, but uh, I can't give up this case until it's solved. All this time passes, and I just cannot put away this case. Someone that killed that young lady is still walking away free. I'm still determined for us to figure this out. Well, I'm in the fight with you, that's for sure. I know you are. (laughs) I love having you on our team. Philip helped us compile a lot of documents and news articles about Debbie's murder. As George and I combed through them, we learned many more details about the case. The autopsy report confirmed that Debbie had been stabbed 17 times. Photos from newspaper articles showed the attack site in the carport on the driver's side of her car. Bloody drag marks showed that her body had been dragged about 25 feet to the back step of the house. Her killer had also taken the time to partially disrobe her, although she wasn't sexually assaulted. Debbie's husband, Doug, discovered Debbie's body at 1 a.m. on Monday, August 25, 1975. When he arrived at the house, he first noticed the back door of the home was standing open, which immediately alarmed him. As he made his way into the backyard, he also saw that the kitchen window was broken and glass was on the ground. He found Debbie lying in a pool of blood at the base of the back step. Not knowing whether the killer was still on the property, Doug fled the scene and drove the four minutes back to his place of work. Once there, he called police. Debbie's killer stole her purse from the crime scene, and it has never been recovered. Philip provided us newspaper clippings from 1975, which included photos of Debbie's stepdad, Bob, showing police a purse that was similar to the one she'd had. It was a light blue denim purse with red flowers embroidered on the flap. The murder weapon was never recovered either. Several knives were analyzed for evidence in the months following the murder, but none had any trace of blood on them. Originally, we had been under the impression that Debbie had planned to leave her house that evening at about 9.30 p.m., but we discovered that, in fact, she had never made such a statement to anyone and had not intended to leave that early. In his original statement to police the day after the murder, Doug stated that he tried to call Debbie from the Pizza Inn, where he was a manager, at about 10 p.m., The restaurant had become quite busy and he wanted Debbie to come and assist him. The timing and reason for this phone call told to us that Debbie hadn't planned on going to the restaurant until sometime after 10 p.m. This was a critical new detail to us. Initially, we thought Debbie's killer had hidden in the backyard, waiting for her to exit her home at 9.30 p.m. It seemed like she'd been ambushed by the killer as she came out the back door. But this new piece of information about the 10 p.m. phone call indicated that our initial scenario was probably incorrect. The question became, what led to Debbie exiting her home earlier than planned and leaving her back door open? We knew Debbie's husband, Doug, was questioned by police soon after her murder, but we learned that several other people were questioned as well. Debbie's own brother and cousin were questioned, as was Doug's brother. Several of Doug's co-workers were brought in and gave statements to police as well. The waitress who worked with him that night, Marianne, stated that for several hours of the evening, only she and Doug were working at the restaurant and that she was positive that he did not leave. Doug's alibi was further confirmed by the fact that he had not made the nightly deposit, which required him to leave the restaurant to go to a nearby bank. 
The restaurant had been too busy for him to leave that night, and the deposit envelope with the money in it was found in the cash register the next day. Also, between Doug and Marianne, only Doug was authorized to run the cash register, which was yet another reason he could not leave the restaurant that night. In addition to Marianne, two more of Doug's co-workers, Paul and Lex, were questioned by police as they had been at the restaurant at certain points that evening. Paul had worked from approximately 5 to 9 and had been there when Debbie's parents were there for dinner during his shift. After he clocked out, he went out on a date a few hours before returning to the Pizza Inn around 1 a.m. to assist Doug with inventory. Lex reportedly showed up to the restaurant around 11 p.m. also to help with the inventory. When Doug returned from finding Debbie's body, Paul and Lex were both at the restaurant. Doug quickly told them what he had discovered. Paul and Lex then hopped into the car and drove to Doug's house. They were there when police arrived and Doug returned to the scene a few minutes later. When police walked through the home, they found no signs of a struggle inside. They noticed a paring knife on the kitchen counter, a glass with liquid in it on the coffee table, and a napkin with a peach pit in it. Wet towels were found in the bathroom, but nothing appeared out of place and no valuables had been stolen. A tire track and shoe print were found in the gravel alley on the south side of the property, but it was never determined if either of those belonged to the killer. Early on, we decided there was one thing we definitely had to do if we were going to get some forward progress in this case. I definitely think that if we're going to make headway, I really think we're going to have to take a trip to Lubbock. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I just don't see any way around it. I mean, obviously, on both ends, we've been doing some preliminary research. And I thought about it a lot this morning. I was just going over the list of people that we really need to talk to. And I've been interviewing people for a very long time. You can do it over the phone, and it's fine. You can get good information that way, but a lot of times it's just better to see them face-to-face. Yeah, absolutely. And see them in their space, you know, go to their home, go to their place of business, sit down and talk to them, you know, get the flavor. You know, you want to read their body language when they're giving answers. It's just a much fuller experience. I mean, obviously you know as much about that or more than I do from your work experience and life experience, but... It's just a thought I want to throw at you. What do you think? I mean, you already know I'm game. You already know. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of figured you would be. Also, it's something we've discussed, but we need to talk about it now. The anniversary of her murder is coming up. Yeah, that's true. And so, I mean, I know this is just, it's in your wheelhouse. It's what you love to do anyway. But I'm thinking, could we be at the house on the anniversary of the night of the murder? I mean... That would be amazing. Yeah. I want to get a flavor of the lighting out there, the yard, the space, like like how much space are we talking about, the back, you know, the porch area, the carport. The neighborhood. Yeah. The neighborhood, the street out front. And we can Google Earth it all day long. We can ask people all day long to send us pictures and tell us about it. Sometimes the best journalistic tool is to be present. And I think we need to go. Yeah, I mean, seriously, to be at that house at the same time on the same date that she was murdered. I mean, who knows what we'll uncover, but I bet there'll be something that pops out to us that we we would never think about had we not visited the scene. Agreed. And you know that's my bread and butter anyways. Being on the ground at the spot. It just talks to you. Yeah, I agree a thousand percent. So I guess at this point, a couple things we're going to need to do pretty quickly. We need to make a comprehensive list 
of every single person that we for sure want to try to track down. Yeah, for sure. And just try to figure out how many of these people still live in Lubbock. I know we found a couple already, but we need to do some brainstorming maybe this weekend. You create a list, I create a list, and then we'll just collab and see exactly who we want to hit, where we want to hit them, and then just go and try to track these people down. We'll only be able to be down there for a few days, so we've got to make best use of our time. Something else that just crossed my mind, we should try to make some media contacts down there. Yes. Especially the Avalanche Journal newspaper, because they're the ones who published dozens and dozens of articles on her case back in the day. So they might want to bite on this, and then there's got to be like a, a TV news station that we could maybe do an interview with or talk to, you know, especially because Liz will be there too, right? So I'm sure they'd be interested to talk to Debbie's sister. Yeah. Actually, um, funny you should mention that. Had a conversation with Liz, and she is very interested. If we're willing to come, she said she is willing to meet us there. Okay. Great. Yeah. We need to try to get as much attention as we possibly can when we're down there for one simple reason. People don't know what they know. And when the case gets back in the newspaper, on TV, on social media, we may be able to boil some new information to the surface. We may be able to boil some new person of interest or someone who has just information about it that the police have never talked to or considered. So we got about three or four fronts we're going to have to really start making some hay quick on. We need to try to get with the police department too. Maybe Liz can work on that one. Yeah, I mean, we can try. I can tell you right now, I think that they would definitely talk to her. I mean, you know, my experience, it's always a crapshoot with the police department. Sometimes they're really cooperative. Sometimes they're just not. I've never dealt with Lubbock PD before. So I don't know. Yeah, we have to at least try. We have to give them the opportunity and let them know that we are currently looking into this case. Yeah. Whether they support it or not. Yeah, that's fair. It's worth a try at least to get a meeting with them. Yeah, that's completely fair. I agree. You know I'm excited for a road trip and to see some of these locations firsthand. Absolutely. Yeah, you're going to love West Texas. Awesome. Well, let's work on dates and everything else and we'll get our stuff together and get organized. All right, sweet. I'm looking forward to this. Awesome. Me too. Thanks, George. I gave Liz a call to let her know our plan to visit Lubbock the same week she and her sister Paula would be there. I wanted to clarify what investigative efforts had been pursued over the years to try and find Debbie's killer. I first asked her how her parents had contributed to the investigation outside of proving that Lucas did not kill their daughter. Well, they felt like nothing had been done. With the exception, you know, of the initial investigation, probably the first six to ten months of after her being murdered, they felt like nothing else had been done. So they hired a private detective, and they were trying to find her killer. They spent years doing that. They tried everything they possibly could, and you know, the means that they had at the time. But unfortunately, they weren't able to solve her murder. So what prompted you in 2017 to start your own journey? I had decided that the beginning of 2017, I would begin what I would refer to as my journey. I started my journey and then started communicating more with the Lovett PD and realizing that they they hadn't done anything on her case over the course of decades. It was uh, very mind-boggling. It was very difficult to comprehend because the police are who I was supposed to count on and trust. The more I communicated with the police, or tried to, I became more and more determined to solve this, to solve her murder. 
I've had multiple trips to Lubbock, meeting with police. I have been able to locate and find many people that knew Debbie back at that time in 75 or before. I found all her bridesmaids and her maid of honor. I mean, I've just started my own investigation and going through the documents that I have and the information that I have, lots of phone calls, talking to multiple people. I just kept on plugging along. I've met with a lot of different people that I have found from that time, just trying to nail down what's real, what's not, what's true, what's not. And then my mother at the time being elderly, it became more of an important journey for me to get for the answers that she had seeked for so many years. I was determined to solve her murder before she died. But um, I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. On our next episode, join us as we head to Lubbock, Texas to see for ourselves where Debbie was killed and talk with people who will hopefully help us break the case. Murder case gone cold for nearly 50 years has piqued the interest of a pair of investigators determined to finally solve it. At the light, turn right onto 82nd Street. Then the destination is on your left. Still, look how dark that is. You can't see a thing. Yeah, and think about all the um, unnatural light that yeah. exists now, just That's like exactly. the air, so. Yeah, she died right there. On this night. Yeah, right now. Right about now. I will lay you dollars to donuts that the name of the person who did this is in the books I've carried around for 35 years. The other thing is, as the attack's going on here, her attacker can't see much either. No. Oh, that's exactly right. So that could also be part of the distribution of that's the wounds. different wounds because right. they're just aimlessly stabbing. I'm coming for you. Join AMU's cold case team and follow me, Jen Buchholz, and George Jared on our investigation into who really killed Debbie Sue Williamson. If you'd like to be a part of our effort and follow along, please join our Facebook group titled Unsolved Murder of Deborah Sue Williamson. This podcast is brought to you by American Military University. Narrated and produced by Jen Buchholz with co-host and investigative journalist George Jared. Senior producers Leachin Cranick and Andy Crow with support from Lisa Tanis. Sound engineering and editing by Harvest Creative Services. Special thanks to the Casebreakers, an investigative partner of AMU. Subscribe to Break the Case on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.